All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be back in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12. Now that we breezed right through 9 and 10. Why don't we read that together? We'll be reading 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you this morning. And, Lord, we're so so thankful that we can because of Christ. Lord, we have your holy word, which means that we understand um, the truth. We we understand what you have told us about yourself, about who we are, about what the Lord Jesus has done. And now this morning, Lord, about what we are to do in light of all that. Um, Lord, as Peter sort of makes a shift in his focus to now... Talk to us about the way we conduct ourselves. We just ask you that you would give us hearts to receive it. You would give us desire. You would give us the strength. You would give us by your spirit the ability to walk in a manner worthy of this great gospel that has called us and the darkness that we were once in, yet the power that you've pulled us out of, the power of that darkness that you've pulled us out of and brought us into the salvation of your son. Lord, please help us to just think through these things and... Um, Lord, just take these terms and write these things on our hearts. Um, Please keep us from the evil one this morning. Keep us from confusion. Um, Lord, that you would be our teacher. Um, Lord, I just pray you'd speak to every soul in here, everything that they need. And and Lord, that you would do it for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So... Verse 9, verse 10 of chapter 2, we were there for a good long time, and there was good reason for that because it's just chock full of content, and, but the, the sort of the underlying, um, the underlying uh, theme here in verse 9 and 10 is that these people to whom Peter is writing to are the fulfillment of God's sort of intention for Israel at one time, and now these people, these, these Asian Christians are now fulfilling this role of the people of God. And so he calls them a chosen race. This was language that was given to Old Testament Israel, yet they never quite fulfilled this, this position of being God's chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter, Peter is using all of this language that was, that was prescribed originally to Old Testament Israel, and he takes it and applies it to the New Testament people of God. And in particular, there's a purpose that, that they have become these things. 
The purpose is that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. These identity markers aren't just things that they're to own and sort of take on and think about. They have a particular purpose. It's so that you might think about them, absorb them, own them for yourself, and from that proclaim, live a life of praise and proclamation, um, particularly with regard to his excellencies. It's a wonderful term that just describes those things that, that are sort of intrinsic to God that make him praiseworthy. That, that these excellencies are the things that we are to proclaim. And Peter goes on to describe this God who, has, who is excellent as the God who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's creation language all in that. And God calls us out of the darkness of sin, calls us out of bondage to sin into his marvelous light. And then to put a fine point in it of what he means by darkness and light, he says, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we looked a little bit last time about how this is found in Hosea, and that this prophecy of Hosea was made to Old Testament Israel. It was made to Israel, it was made to Judah. And it was a, just a wonderful realization um, that, I, that as I was studying it last time, just at how the New Testament writers, again, even in Hosea, you see how they interpret Hosea as applying the, the, the things that belong to Israel to us. The promises made to them belong to us. And this is just Peter's way of saying that this New Testament church, these Gentile Christians, most of them, are the Israel of God. And we looked at that for a, little, um, for a small amount of time last week. Now, as we come to verse 11, Peter is going to sort of shift more toward a practical emphasis, toward a more practical section. Peter's going to spell out now with a little bit further detail and attention as to how these believers are to conduct themselves in light of all these glorious truths and these glorious things that he's already spoken. So he gives us all these identity markers, tells us that we've been called out of darkness, tells us that we now have received mercy. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. So the first term he uses after he, he uses these wonderful identity markers is the term beloved. The term beloved. It's a wonderful, wonderful term. Peter's described these profound realities that we now enjoy. And he sort of turns to a warm tone. An even more intimate tone than he's already had, really. in calling these believers Beloved. It's a tone of love and affection. He calls them this wonderful name. Really, if you look through the scriptures, this term is primarily used in context of husband and wife, father and children. And this is the term Peter uses. Peter certainly means to convey his own love in this term. Peter's not just some professor speaking to students, right? He's a brother. He's a father in the Lord in some ways, but he's a brother. These people are his family. This is how he thinks of them. These are his own dear family members. But even more than that, I think Peter is saying that these Christians in Asia are not just his beloved, right? But they are his beloved because they are God's beloved, right? They are beloved of God. Peter's just gone on and on listing their great status and position in Christ, their great privilege to proclaim his excellencies, 
the amazing reality that they've been pulled out of darkness and been given mercy, how can you conclude anything else than these people are the recipients of the matchless, infinite love of God? It's amazing. They are loved of God. So these Asian believers, and you and I, for in Christ, we've been, we've been loved by God. We have been given love by God. And this love of God is the thing that's actually changed us. You know, Paul actually says that the love of God has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's this love that actually brings the change. It's not just this sort of sense of raw duty to obey God. But it's this, this sense that every genuine believer has experienced if you're in Christ. That there is a God and that this God is a God full of love and glory and a God who's full of forgiveness and a God who has given of himself immensely to bring you to himself. And this love is the very thing that changes us. This love is the very thing that motivates us. As Paul says, this is the love that constrains him. You, know, you would think commands constrain him. Well, It's the love of God that constrains him. It's the love of Jesus that constrains him. He can't get over God's love in Jesus Christ. He can't get over it. You know, we we assume it. America assumes it. Assumes that they deserve the love of God, right? They assume that when it's not around or his goodness isn't around, then they get mad at him. But for those of us who are in Christ, we know we don't deserve the love of God. (laughs) We don't. If you know yourself, you know that's true. You deserve his just judgment you deserve his as steve was reading you deserve to be forsaken you deserve to not be with him you deserve not to be in his presence he's light there's no darkness in him and we are in, we were in darkness and yet because of his love he brings us to us to himself so it's amazing that we are called beloved brethren but this is exactly the term that's used we are beloved if you're in christ you may not have the love of family may not have the love of even friends or neighbors, co-workers, but you have the love of the people of God, and you have the love of God himself. And that's amazing. And it's with this tone of love that Peter now has introduced even more something interesting comes out of it. In other words, he doesn't immediately move into some warm, affectionate you know, um, uh, ideas, notions. This tone of love introduces a strong warning. So what you have here is Peter, who's a good brother, who's concerned about your welfare in this world and in the next. It's a strong warning that he comes with, that he introduces this section with. And then he gives an optimistic command. What is that strong warning? It says it in verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And what's the optimistic command? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we have a strong warning and an optimistic command. 
So this strong warning begins with an urgent plea. This word for urge is very strong. Urge in, in, the, in, the, in the English doesn't quite capture it. It's almost beg. Beseech is the idea. The term urge is the term that Paul uses to the crew members on the ship when he's telling them, listen, stay on the ship. God has told me we will survive if you stay on the ship. But if you don't, you will not be saved. And so they're tempted to jump off because things aren't going well. And Paul urges them, be courageous and stay on the ship. So it was a matter of life and death, this issue of of urgency coming from Paul. It's the same word used here. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lust. This urgency is a matter of of life and death. That's not too strong, is it? Peter just said that this fleshly lust that wage war, not against some earthly blessing, but they wage war against the soul. So Peter, as a, as a loving brother, he comes to us and he says, brother to brother, brother to sister, I want to urge you in something. Don't play around with fleshly lusts. I urge you. And so before he spells out, but, but before he spells out this, this, this idea of fleshly lusts, and we're going to get there, to dive in a little bit to what he means by fleshly lust. But before he can even get there, he goes right back to our identity, our, our identity again <laughs> and who we are. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Peter brings us right back into, into sort of our status in this world. That we are aliens and strangers. The idea with strangers is that we are foreigners in relationship to this world and the people in it. And the idea of aliens is that we are not at home. They're very similar terms. Abraham took up these terms in Genesis. A foreigner, stranger. And Peter wants us to know this. Peter wants us to remember that as I'm going to tell you to abstain from fleshly lusts, I tell you this as foreigners here. As strangers here. It's kind of an interesting connection, isn't it? What do fleshly lusts have to do with our being foreigners or exiles here? Well, the idea here is that this is the world, this is the age where fleshly lusts still exist. And, and we are people, as Paul says, that have been saved out of this evil generation. There's a sense in which that's not true, is it? I mean, because we're still here. But there's also another sense in which it's absolutely true. Right? Because we've been joined to Christ who's seated in the heavenly places. We're people of the resurrection. We've been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, awaiting a new heaven's new earth where righteousness dwells. We're born again. In other words, mentioning these terms, Peter's calling us to remember the world that one day will be without fleshly lusts. That's sort of the idea here. He's thinking of that and calling you to remember that you don't don't belong here. 
You've got a world that wants to indulge their flesh every time they turn around and wants you to endorse that indulgence. No matter what it is, whether it be sloth or whether it be lust of the, uh, of the sexual type or whatever it is, this is the way the world works. And Peter says, listen, you are, you are strangers and aliens. Do not go down that road of indulging fleshly lusts. In the world to come, the new heavens, new earth, fleshly lusts, self-centered passions that hurt ourselves and hurt others will no longer exist. Peter says, that's where you're headed. That's your stock. Don't indulge these things because of which the wrath of God comes upon this world. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter, his second letter in chapter 3. Verse 10, the But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The earth and its works will be burned up. All those things that the wicked have worked in this world for their own self-glory and exaltation, all of these things burned up. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in in this way, i.e. fleshly lust being destroyed and the works thereof, this whole pattern of life of the wicked, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Why? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, we want to live in a society where Things are done right according to God's will and way. This is the heartbeat of Christians. We hunger for righteousness. We thirst for righteousness. We long for righteousness. Sin is terrible to us. We long for that new heavens, new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So there's something, there, there's something about casting your gaze on the world to come that ensures that you live spotless and blameless here. That's why he says, aliens and strangers. You must remember that. You are people that are headed for a world of righteousness and love and truth. No sin, no death. <laughs> That's where you're headed, a world of love. Where God's glory is the center of it all. And we work with purpose, love, all those things. This is why Peter brings it out. He wants you to remember who you are, where you're headed. He has to bring these things up before he can even say, do this. Remember, you're strangers and aliens. It's so important we know who we are. It's so important that we know why we are who we are. Peter can hardly tell us to do anything detached from this. If we're not to be conformed to our former lusts, And if we're to walk in holiness, it's because God has accomplished an amazing salvation for us. And we live, as he says in verse 1, we live in this era that the prophets foretold. If we conduct ourselves in fear during our sojourn in chapter 1, it's because we are redeemed with perishable thing, or with imperishable, the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. 
If we're to live in fear, it's because God is our Father and He's an impartial judge. If we continue with sincere love toward our brethren, it's because we've been born again from imperishable seed. If we proclaim His excellencies, it's because we are a royal priesthood, holy nation, etc. We must remember who we are. That's what I'm saying. It's just, it's just constantly remembering, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not going to choose this route of sin. I'm born again. I'm not going to indulge in fleshly lusts like the world. I've got a new heavens and new earth coming. It's constantly remembering who you are, what's been done for you in Christ. This is Peter, Paul, this is all the New Testament writers' paradigm for instruction and exhortation. Even Peter starts out, Beloved. Just remember you're beloved. It's not just strict rules. It's not just strict commands. It's remembering who you are. Paul spells this out in a couple ways. This is, just, you can listen, listen to these here. I'll just mention two. Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I live a life of perseverance toward this goal of the resurrection or he will be awarded by the righteous judge on that day. And Paul says, Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So you're already perfect. You must know that about yourself. From God's perspective, you are already perfect in in a real sense before him. You already know him. He already knows you. You're in right relationship with him. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. It's always to remember, you're not attaining perfection. You are perfect, therefore live like it. That's the point, over and over. Be who you are. Be who you are. Remember who you are. It's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Is is we are already perfect, brethren. When you become a child of God, and you believe on the Lord Jesus and you have the Spirit, you're as right with God there as you ever will be and you need to live like it. That's what he's saying. Listen to the way Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, and this is a, this is a chapter where Paul says some hard things to Corinthians because they're, 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 um, uh, they're allowing sin in the camp. And Paul says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. That is, you might be pure and get the the, the wickedness of this particular man's sin out from among you. Listen, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. <laughs> For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. They are in unleavened already because Jesus has paid for their sin. From God's perspective, they are unleavened. And praise God for that. When you, when you fall and you're thinking, how am I going to ever, you know, attain to this, I don't know, right position with God, you need to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm already right with God. Certainly I need to ask for forgiveness. Certainly I need to restore the fellowship that's been broken. But, but you do it as a child of God. You do it as a son of God, as a daughter of God, not someone who's going to climb back up some ladder to become his child. This is just so vital to understand if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, if you're going to abstain from fleshly lusts, if you're going to walk in confidence, you've got to know who you are before you do 
anything. All right, so that was just a short aside there with Paul. But So back, back to verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. To abstain from fleshly lusts, he says, which wage war against the soul. So the term here, abstain, is a term apeko. It's, it comes from the term to have, to hold, to possess. It's the idea. So the, similar ter- or the same derivative term is used in Romans 1, where the people are said to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hold it down. That's the word. Or a similar, similar derivation to the word. It means to hold down in place. And so the idea here is that the idea here is that you are to sort of keep oneself from having something. To abstain. There's something that wants to have you. Make sure you control yourself to not be possessed by it. So listen to Numbers 6, 2 and 3. Regarding Nazarite vow. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin." So the idea here is that sort of one taking a Nazarite vow must abide by a strict rule of no wine or strong drink all the days they've pledged their vow. They must control their desires. They must say no to these things if they're to remain pleasing to the Lord in this vow. All right, and you can imagine if one's used to at the, at the end of a long day grabbing a glass of wine to take the edge off perhaps. They've got to say no to these things. Might see something small, but if you're used to it, maybe it isn't. But it's something that they must be aware of. That there must be intentionality. They must be mindful of, to abstain from these things. So the idea is controlling yourself to say no to something for the Lord's sake. And what are we to say no to? What are we to abstain from? What are we to keep ourselves from indulging in? Well, he says it here, the fleshly lusts. Fleshly lusts. What do we mean by fleshly lusts here? Fleshly lusts are those lusts that are sort of connected to our flesh. The passions that are derived from our unredeemed natures, so to speak. There's this still this aspect of flesh in us tied to this body and to this age. We are not fully redeemed yet, right? We we are born again. We certainly have hearts of flesh, as the new covenant promises, and yet we still have this body that desires linger there that want to overtake us. This is so clear in the New Testament. With Paul, James, and Peter, they all have an understanding of this ongoing presence of sinful desires somehow attached to this body. So let's look at a few of these together. You can just listen on if you'd like, but I'll be in Romans 6, 7, 8 first. Romans 6, 7, and 8. 
In verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul tells you to put your thinking caps on again about who you are. It's everywhere. In verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When sin comes and dictates to you the way it wants you to live, you say, you're dead to me. That old man is crucified with Jesus Christ. Paul says, consider that. Know that. Calculate yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're now alive to what He wants. Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So wait a minute, Paul. Which is it? Am I dead or am I not dead? Because you're telling me that sin will still want to rise up and so it seems like it's still alive. Well, Paul says, yes, both are true. (laughs) Positionally, before God, you are dead to sin. The penalty of sin has been taken away from you. And the power of sin as well. You are, you are able now in Jesus Christ by the Spirit to say no to sin. You don't have to sin in some sense, right? You don't. Paul says by the Spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. However, it, is, it will be fighting you tooth and nail every day. Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, this body that still will die, so that you obey its lusts. Your body will still, these lusts are still connected to it and will want to reign. It will want to become your king again. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Think about that. Again, back to this issue. Who, you, who are you? You are people that have been raised from the dead already. Slated for, for, for an era of resurrection life. Don't succumb to things that are characterized by this present evil age and darkness. Verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You, you have the grace of God. God has given you supply to overcome sin. But you still have this unwelcomed resident within you that wants to reign. Romans 7, verse 14, Paul Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. Sold into bondage to sin. Now Paul is not talking about his identity in Jesus Christ. He's talking about who he is in and of himself. And he already says it later in the chapter. There's nothing good in me. Well, wait a minute. Of course there is. I mean in my flesh, is what Paul is saying. Yes, there's something very good in Paul. The Spirit of the living God. But in his flesh there is no good thing, and there's no good thing in any person outside of Jesus Christ. Paul, this isn't talking about Paul's identity in verse 14, it's talking about his anthropology. It's talking about who he is outside of the Spirit's work. If, you, if he's considering himself from that angle, he's sold under sin. Adam sold him out. Sold us out. 
But now we, like Adam, follow in his train every day. And Paul is going to sit here and say that there's still this aspect of me that's flesh. The anthropology of Paul has not changed in that sense. There's this unredeemed aspect that will not be redeemed. That will just be a constant opponent to you every day until the resurrection where you get a new body that won't be mortal anymore. It'll be swallowed up in immortality. But this is the reality. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have a war going on in you. And that's what Paul describes. And it's tied to this flesh. It's, it's kind of mysterious. I don't quite understand it fully. But I know that it's real and true. And I know you do too. And Paul's going to capture for us exactly this psychology that we all experience too. Listen to what he says in verse 15. For what, I'm, for what I am doing. And, he's, and it's right off the heels of him saying that he's still of flesh in a real sense. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Present tense, that's Paul at the time when he's writing Romans. He doesn't understand what he's doing. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. And people say, well, I mean, how can you take Paul here as, as a Christian, right? I mean, if you take Paul as a Christian here, then, well, you're going to give license to everybody just to sin. Right? This is what one man told me one time. If you take Paul as, a, as being a Christian here in this passage, describing himself as a Christian then you're going to give license to the guy who wants to abuse his wife and says, well, hey, Romans 7. Is that how Paul thinks about his sin? Hey, there's indwelling sin. He says, these are things I hate. The way he describes this unwelcomed resident in him, this flesh, this, these, this indwelling sin, is something that he hates. Not something that he uses as an excuse. Verse 16, Paul says, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, but the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I, I, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. That's what I mean by this, elk, this unwelcomed resident, always sort of there. Even when you're doing wonderful things. <laughs> Prayer, going to share the gospel downtown, singing in worship, is right there. Right? Saying these evil things. You experience that? So did Paul. And that's because you've still got an unwanted you in you. (laughs) Still there. Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. See, it's still there attached to this body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members, in what I say, in 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 what I do, in, in what I look at. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from what? The body 
of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself with my mind serve the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. And then in Romans 8, 10 and 12, let's start in verse 9, Paul says, describing those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit, he says, However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So all genuine believers, without exception, have the Spirit. You belong to Jesus if you have the Spirit. But if you don't have the Spirit, you do not belong to Jesus. There hasn't been a change in your life. You do not belong to Jesus. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, still, while you're a Christian, you carry around a mortal body. And this mortal body is such because of sin. Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. See, justification brings the Spirit in your life that makes you alive, and yet there's still this body you're carrying around. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So that's Paul's 6, 7, 8. You see over and over the desires that are linked to this body that are at war with the law of our minds. This was the case for Paul. This is the case for James. Look at James chapter 4. There were quarrels that existed in the churches to, to whom James is writing. There are these quarrels and conflicts that were arising. And what does he say? Verse 1 of chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now some take this members to be the members of the congregation. I think that's I think it's more likely he means members of the body because if you look back at chapter 3 verse 6, the tongue is considered a member. Look And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And so James has this idea too, that there are these pleasures that wage war in our members that cause us to act out in ways that produce quarrels and conflicts. Verse 2, he says it flat out. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. It's interesting that murder and lust go together, isn't it? These things that you want that, that are ungodly and that are in the realm of trespass lead to bloodshed. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So James has this idea that it's, it comes from within. And he's not bringing this as in, in, any sort of excuse. He's saying, you're not... <laughs> You're not fighting against this with the strength of the Lord. Now, why do I say that? Because at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, have what? An ability to overcome these lusts. An ability to overcome these sinful desires that bring conflicts in your midst. And it's making them friendly with the world on all kinds of things. They are not drawing near to God. 
He says, you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. God is the only one who can defeat these things in our lives. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. You put to death the deeds of the body, how? By the Spirit. Right? It's the Spirit of God that helps us put to death these things. Not just by raw grit. 1 Peter 1, back to Peter, he says, in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and also in all your behavior. Not minimizing the importance of commands here, I'm just saying that in and of themselves, apart from the Spirit, What do they do? They produce Israel. Old Testament unbelieving Israel. But we have the Spirit and these commands. And as God brings these commands to our eyes, we ask Him to help us by His Spirit to overcome them. And and by God's grace, we do. We can say no. And the only reason we can say no is because we have His Spirit. So we still have these sinful desires that pull at us, that want to reign over us, that want us to do evil. But we must abstain from them. We must control ourselves and abstain from them by the grace of God. We must put them to death. We must do this by the Spirit, remembering who we are and who we will be. Now, this struck me as I was reading this, actually this morning, of how Peter talks about fleshly lusts. Fleshly lusts come from within, right? I mean, these things are from within. You know, it's one thing if somebody's coming at a temptation, you can walk away from it, right? You know, these things you can't, can't really walk away from. Right? Whoever that church father was that says that the problem with monks is that they want to take themselves out of the world, but they can't take the world out of them. So there, there's a sense in which you can't, you can't finally be free from these, sort of this nagging, unwelcomed principle. And yet, James says, abstain from it. What does the world say about these feelings that they have, these these passions, these lusts? Well, the world says because they feel a certain way, therefore they can't help themselves, and they need to be true to themselves and live out these passions. That's what they say. Peter said these are things that need to be avoided at all costs. if you're to walk with the Lord. So it's not, about, it's not about being true to yourself, right? And living out these passions because you feel them so strongly. It's about are you being true to the Lord? Those who think that, that, that internal desires are certified and approved by God just because they have them and they feel sort of natural will perish unless these things are forsaken. So when people bring that up to you and say, well, I was born this way, I feel this way, you know, whether you're talking about homosexuality or, or any of these manifold deeds of the flesh that feel very natural, I, you know, you're married but you love this other woman, hey, I can't help myself, this kind of stuff that goes on everywhere. You just tell them, look, it's not about being true to yourself, it's about being true to the Lord who made you. Fleshly lusts are something to be killed, not to be indulged. And the only way you can is by the Spirit of God. Come to Jesus, and he'll show you how. So that's it. So we need to understand that, that while these things, they feel 
impossible to resist at times. We can, by the Spirit of God, abstain from them. Or else Peter wouldn't give us this command, right? If we couldn't do it, this wouldn't even make any sense. But we can. By God's grace, by His Spirit, we can. So what are these lusts? What are fleshly lusts? Well, I mean, you can turn to Galatians 5. We can can see them pretty easily. Galatians 5, Paul lists out the deeds of the flesh. Some of these are lusts in terms of passion. Some of these are actually sort of the outworkings of these passions, but you'll get the sense. Verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. What are these things? What are all these things? All these things are things are things for you. You're at the center of all these things. Why do you have outbursts of anger? Because someone's wronged you. Why are you jealous? Because someone has more than you have. Right? Why are you, why are you drunk? Because you want to escape. You see what it is? It's the flesh. The flesh is, the flesh is God is me. Me. I just need me time. That's the flesh. You, 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 you. In some ways, it's very, it's very rampant in the American culture, isn't it? Their number one commandment is do what makes you happy. No matter what it is, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you feel good. I just care that you're happy. Go ahead. Change your gender as long as you're happy. And you know, the awful thing is, behind closed doors, they're miserable, right? They're suicidal. The whole whole transgender world is just such a train wreck. It's so awful because they're killing themselves. They They don't want you to know that, but it's clear in all the data. But this is what the flesh wants. The flesh... The flesh wants to exalt you, and it brings death. That's what all these things are. Fleshly lusts. It's just me-centered rather than God-centered. It's me-centered rather than other-centered. That's what the flesh is. Well, why are these fleshly lusts so bad? Well, Peter says here it's because they wage war against the soul. They wage war. This term is actually a term used in context of soldiers. Soldiers out doing their duty. Well, what's a soldier's duty? Well, in wartime, soldiers are there for combat. They are there to win. They are there to battle. They are there to conquer. That's what they're for. Or to defend. But in this context here, this is an idea here of, of, of tactics toward destruction. It's a term of sort of war tactic. And Peter is saying here that these fleshly lusts that come up in us are not neutral things. They're waging war. 
They're waging war. So your desire to click on the computer or on your phone to look at things you shouldn't, that's a tactic from your flesh to wage war against you, your soul. That's what's going on. They're not neutral. It's not just a random sort of, oh, that's an interesting desire. No, it's an it's a enemy invasion is what it is. It's sort of the idea. It's an ambush. Peter puts it in the context of war. He says it's waging war against the soul. Now, now I, was, I was thinking about this passage, and this is really interesting, the way Peter says this. He doesn't say they wage war in your soul, although, that, although that's true, they, they wage war inside of you. He says they wage war against the soul. So he's not, he's not primarily talking here about an inward struggle within firstly, although that's implied. He's talking about, he's talking about the goal of the inward struggle. The goal of the flesh is against you. That's the goal. That's what he saying. It's against the soul. These lusts are against you. They want to take you to hell. That's, that's what he's saying. They want your defeat. That's what it's saying. They're against the soul. Sort of their purpose. So you don't only have an adversary outside of you with Satan. You've got an adversary inside of you. One that wants you to lose. These stakes are high, aren't they? Against the soul. I think soul can be understood here as just you. You. They're against you, your never dying soul. They're against you. You will exist forever. Your soul will exist forever. You will exist forever. Your soul, the essence of who you are, will exist forever. And these fleshly lusts are against you. Continuing on with the Lord in eternity, they want to take you into outer darkness. So the stakes are high. And Jesus says these same things about lusts, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 5, if your right arm causes you to stumble, what do you do? Cut it off. Why? Because there's an assumption that if you don't, and you're not violent with sin, what will happen? You will go to hell. Isn't that what he says? To disciples? (laughs) If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. Why? Because if you don't wage war against your sin, you will go to hell with two eyes. Better to go to to glory with one eye, he says, than to go to hell with two. Now, eyes and arms are pretty precious, right? But there's something far more precious than that. And that's your eternal destiny. Make no mistake about it. Fleshly lusts will take you to hell if you don't war against it. That's what he's saying. Paul says the same thing, right? Romans 8, 12 and 13, which I deliberately did not read yet. Right after Paul is talking about this mortal body, 
that will one day be given life by the Spirit. Romans 8, 12 through 14. So then, brethren, in light of this fact that the Spirit who dwells in you is going to give life to your mortal body one day, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything. You're not indebted to the flesh. It's going to tell you pay up. But you're not indebted one bit. Brethren, he says brethren here. He says that. This is not hypothetical for you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation to the, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. And he's not talking about physical death. Everybody dies. He's talking about eternal death. You live according to the flesh. You live a lifestyle of indulging the flesh. You perish. I don't care what you say about yourself, what you say about your profession in Jesus Christ. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There's all this talk. How, does it, how do you know you're being led by the Spirit? Are you warring against your sin? That's how you know you're led by the Spirit. It's not some esoteric, you know, should I take a right or take a left? It's, am I putting sin to death? How do I think about sin? Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he's writing to the church. Do you not know that? You need to know that. There are so many people confused on this. So many addiction recovery things, so many, so many programs, so many everything that, that, will just, that will just give people no hope that they will ever finally recover from anything. Maybe they'll do a little bit better, but they'll never finally recover from anything. And I know it can be a war, but what I'm saying here is that Paul is very clear, very clear, that do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're a drunkard, you go to hell. You're covetous. Longing for money and all the things money can buy, you go to hell. If you live that life, live that out. But then Paul comes back and he says, listen, but such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how Paul, he's just... (laughs) Brethren, listen, you live a life of drunkenness, you perish. But that's not who you are. You're washed. You're clean. Don't go roll in the mud. Paul says in Ephesians 5, I just want you to, what I want you to hear is that eternity is, is at stake in, in a real sense. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Not even name. Let no one come here and interact with us and say, man, that guy's greedy. He's just all about money. Or, man, that guy talks about, you know, intimate stuff a little bit too loose. Or any kind of impurity. 
None of this must even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk. Moronic talk is the idea. Coarse jesting. You know, crude jokes. Crude jokes. Paul gets down to crude jokes. He gets that deep. Crude jokes. Innuendo. These kinds of things. Not to be named among the saints. But rather giving of thanks. What should be coming out of our mouths? Should be a thankful tongue. Thankfulness, encouragement, those kinds of things. Why? Verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What empty words? The words that you can live a sinful life and still make it. You can live a life where you're not, you're not living a holy life and you can still be okay. Maybe you'll be on the, you know, the 10th rung. You know, maybe, maybe on the podium you'll be down, way down here. You won't be on the top in, in glory, but you know, you'll make it. As Charles Stanley has said, you can be an unbelieving believer as long as you made a confession when you were young. Is that what Paul says? Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. There are so many teachers and leaders that have so many people in their congregations that are sort of in this gray area. They're living with the person that's not their spouse. They don't really know how to go to them and say it. So instead of challenging them to repent of their fornication and those kinds of things, they just say, well, you're not living God's best for you. You know, and they keep it vague. They're, it's just empty words. And, and, and they still put them in the category of believer and those kinds of things. Paul says, listen, don't be deceived by that. As the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sobering, isn't it? Sobering. And let me just say that wars are not won with the victory of one battle. Right? These fleshly lusts want to wage war against you. They, it's not won with the victory of one battle, but by the victories of many small battles that wear you down. Typically when people fall away, it's because they've made 10,000 bad choices. That wear you down, your conviction wear you down, your conscience gets seared. So one reason we cannot give an inch to sin is because we don't know if this will be the start of the snowball of victories, Right? of small battles that win the war for our souls. Now let me just, saying all that, let me also just add, uh, there, there is abundant hope if you have fallen. Please do not hear me say that if you have fallen, if you're in a war right now, that there's no hope for you. A failed battle does not mean you are cut off. It's not a good thing, but it doesn't mean you're cut off. The blood of Jesus still cleanses you from all sin. This is what 1 John says. John says, I write these things to you, brethren, that you may not sin. John doesn't want you to sin. That's why he writes. I write, he writes all these wonderful things about the historicity of Christ and, and, and the love of God and the new birth and all these things so that you don't sin. But he says, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone sins, they can confess their sin 
So if you've fallen, if you're, if you're caught right now in a snare of sin, free yourself by looking to Jesus Christ. See, Satan wants you to stay snared. Jesus wants you to get up. Look at him. See what he's done. His blood is plenty sufficient to forgive you of any sin. And then go on abstaining from fleshly lust that wage war against your soul. Isn't that wonderful? John, John doesn't want you to sin. New Testament writers, God, they don't want you to sin. But they also know it's going to happen. But you know, one of the ways we give Satan a black eye, when he thinks he's fully one, is by saying, yes, I've blown it, but I'm not righteous in myself anyway. Right? There's one who took my place, who took the punishment for this very sin. And he's all the righteousness I'll ever need. So you get up, like a righteous man does in the book of Proverbs, even though you fall seven times. You get up, and as the writer of Hebrews says, you run. You run the race, and you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, and you run. And you run. To a people that are, the writer of Hebrews, to, to writing to people that are neglecting so great a salvation, he says, run. God wants you to run. Don't wallow. Run. Run. That's what he wants. And we can do that. Why? Because we have a heavenly high priest who's gone into heaven for us. And when we fall, he is there to remind us of his blood that continues to cleanse us from all sin. So, fight, abstain, but know there's hope in the gospel. But abstain. (laughs) That's not who you are anymore. Fleshly lust, they, they don't characterize you anymore. That's not who we are. So that's verse... 11. We'll pick up with verse 12 next time. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I just pray that we would be encouraging other, each other every day, every, every week, to remember who we are, that we are, we are your people. We're your chosen ones. We're your children. Lord, we don't we're called out of the world. Lord, help us to live like it. Help us to consider ourselves as dead to sin but alive to you. Help us to consider ourselves as those who have been raised from the dead, crucified with Jesus Christ. Lord, please just continue to work in us. And for, for the brethren in here, Lord, who are just truly struggling with these things, just pray that you blow away all that fog and just let them hear that you are their salvation. You are their Father, and Jesus is their brother and Savior. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.